Okay, so how many of you made a New Year's resolution? Anybody make a New Year's resolution? I did. I made a New Year's resolution. Last night, I was watching uh, Sven Gulli, which is my custom to do on Saturday nights. It's kind of that, you know, B-League, 40s, 50s, scary movie, you know, type thing. That's my thing. So I watched that on, on Saturday nights. And so Patty, she was like, you know, honey, we watch a lot of TV. You know, maybe we should make New Year's resolutions to um, read more you know, watch TV less and, and read more. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's, that's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. Okay, yeah, let's make, I'll make that my New Year's resolution. And so I, I promptly switched to the closed caption on the TV. And I gotta say, I really have to say, I'm, I'm feeling kind of smart, you know? I, I, I really am, I'm feeling a little more intellectual now. So thanks, honey, you know, that was a good looking out, good looking out. I'm guessing, I'm guessing that uh, many of you are kind of, kind of conflicted about where you are in life. You know, New Year's is one of those times where we, we sort of, we look with anticipation and excitement to the year ahead and we kind of take inventory and look back on the last year and what that looked like, you know, and, and uh, how was that for us? And, I'm sure that uh, for a lot of us, it doesn't feel like we're really getting ahead of the game. It doesn't feel like we're winning. Um, in fact, some of us probably feel like we're barely hanging on there, you know, at times, right? Um, especially as we look back over the last year. And maybe you're going through a little something in your life that leaves you feeling like you know, you can't possibly be, be winning. Like, nothing good could be coming out of what you're going through. Um, maybe your spiritual walk is really, really beat up. And you're not even sure if you're saved. You know, I was on YouTube the other day because everyone knows YouTube is where the vast treasury of human enlightenment can be found. And I came across an ancient Chinese fable. It's called The Farmer. Sometimes it's titled Maybe. Maybe. Maybe you've heard of it. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a farmer whose horse ran away. That evening, all his neighbors came around to commiserate. They said, we are so sorry to hear your horses run away. This is most unfortunate. The farmer said, maybe. The next day, the horse came back, bringing seven wild horses with it. And in the evening, everybody came back and said, Oh, isn't that lucky? What a great turn of events. You now have eight horses. The farmer again said, Maybe. The following day, his son tried to break one of those horses. And while he was riding it, he was thrown and he broke his leg. The neighbors then said, Oh, dear, that's too bad. And the farmer responded, Maybe. The next day, officers from the military came around to conscript people into the army, and they rejected his son because he had a broken leg. Again, all the neighbors came around and said, isn't that great? Again, the farmer said, maybe. The idea is, no matter what something looks like on its surface, we can never know how it fits into God's plan for us. 
but God does. We can't assume what we're experiencing or going through now represents the final outcome. Let me say that again. Don't assume what you are experiencing or going through now represents the final outcome. I believe the Lord has something to say to us about this this morning. So if you would, let's open our Bibles to Romans 8.28. We're going to be looking at Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. And while we're moving over there, um, I'll go ahead and give you a little background to Romans. Now, Romans was written to Christians living in the city of... Rome. Surprise, right? Rome was the center of the empire, and by today's standard, we would probably say it was a pretty diverse community, considering people didn't have the kind of transportation that we have today and that we take for granted. There were people living in Rome from all over the known world, and in the first century, it had a population of around a million people. These people were squeezed into an area that was less than 10 square miles. And again, even by today's standard, that's a pretty good-sized city. Roman, uh, Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, and it's believed by most scholars Paul wrote this letter from the city of Corinth while he was there on his third missionary journey. Paul was visiting the churches, gathering offerings to support the church in Jerusalem. Um, they were being persecuted. They were suffering a financial persecution. So there was poverty and starvation going on in Jerusalem. And so that would have put uh, the date of this letter to probably around 56 AD. And it doesn't appear Paul wrote the Romans to address, to address any particular problems in the church. He was simply writing to remind them of some fundamental truths, which would prepare them for future persecution. And Oh boy, it was coming. So I'm going to read through the whole passage, and then we'll go back up to the top and we'll take a look at it. Beginning in verse 28, Romans 8, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's go back up to verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The Lord wants us to know everything that happens to us in this life is for good. Notice he didn't say all things work out. He said all things work together for good. Not necessarily the way we want them to. Not necessarily without difficult and painful results. What's important for us to understand here is what is happening may not necessarily itself be or feel good. There will be suffering and pain in this world. We, his children, are not promised a life on this planet without suffering and pain, right? We live in a fallen world, and there's absolutely no shortage of evil in this world. But God will make it work for his good, and ultimately, our own good. Why? Because God is good. God is good. Amen? Everything in this universe that has ever happened or is going to happen will work together for God's purpose, God's glory, and for good. Sometimes we get a glimpse of how God uses a tragedy for good, and other times we may not. We don't always get to see it, and we may not always know until we get to heaven. But God has a plan, and it takes into account absolutely everything everything. How is that possible? Well, let's read on a little. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among, among many brothers. God foreknew or knew ahead of time the choices we would make, and he planned accordingly. As creatures who live inside time and space, it's hard, if not impossible, for us to understand anything apart from that experience. However, God exists outside of time and space, and he freely moves within it. Time and space are a creation of his, one which we can barely comprehend. Even our, even our simple day-to-day -day workings with time is not how science has come to understand it. The important thing here is, for God, there are no surprises. He sees the past, the present, and the future in the now. We see life like a parade as it passes by. For the Lord, it's like he's above the parade, and he sees it from beginning to its end, all at once. He can't be taken by surprise. He can't be caught unaware. He simply knows everything there ever was or ever is to know. In this way, he also knows us. He knows our hearts and thoughts 
before, now, and even later. And with that knowledge, he knows our choices before he even created the universe. God's plans for us were not an afterthought. It was settled before the earth was shaped. The second part of that verse read, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. One day, Patty and I, we went to In-N-Out Burger after church, and, and Patty noticed that one of the workers looked an awful lot like the young lady who was taking our order. So Patty asked her if the gal was related to her, and she replied, yeah, yes. Having never seen either of these young ladies before, Patty was able to see the family resemblance and could tell they were related. In the case of believers, we are to have a family resemblance to our older brother, Jesus. The resurrected Christ will be the firstborn of a new order, a people without sin, as we originally were created to be. And because we are God's children, we are also called Jesus' brothers and sisters. Verse 30 says, All those who he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Three words I want us all to notice here. Called, justified, and glorified. God's plan for our salvation involves three things. First, we're called. By faith, we recognize we have been called. To me, this word is interesting because it also kind of implies that God, God's appeal is personal. It's directed at us individually. In John 10, verses 1 through 4, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the, gate the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. His sheep know his voice. When he calls, we know, we respond. Next, we're justified. By faith, we're justified or made righteous or found innocent before God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our justification, our salvation has nothing, nothing to do with our own efforts to be good. You say that again, our justification, our salvation has nothing at all to do with our own efforts to be good. Romans 3.23 says, We are all sinners. Every one of us falls short of God's glory. Our salvation rests solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He died and he paid the price so that we wouldn't have to. There is positively, absolutely nothing we can do on our own to earn God's justification apart from believing and answering Jesus' call in faith. And then last, 
we are glorified. By faith, we are glorified. We are transformed into the image of Christ. Glorified is a bit of a mysterious word for us because uh, we read it a lot in Scripture, but we would probably find it pretty difficult to explain. Glorification means several things, depending on how it's used, but in this context, it means being changed or transformed into what is acceptable in heaven, to be in God's physical presence. It involves God's God finally removing all sin from the lives of his children as he completes their transition to their eternal state. In a sense, our glorification is the final result of sanctification, which is the process of change going on in our lives right now. But until Jesus returns, we are burdened with this sin nature that we have. When he does return, the process of sanctification will be finished and our transformation to our glorious state or glorified state will be complete. Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21 tells us, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's important for us to see in this process that God is the agent of change, not us. We are the subjects of that work that God does, that work of change. He does the work. Verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Paul's asking a rhetorical question here based on the case he's been building about our condition as believers. In other words, he's asking, is there any opposition from people or even Satan that is too great? If God is for us, and based on what he's been saying, God clearly is, who could be against us? Who could be against us? Yes, right now we have opposition. God has opposition. But we have God's promise that in the end, we have victory. We have victory. No one or anything will be able to stand against God. Not in the end. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And exactly how much is God for us? So much so, he gave his only son to die for us. And only through Christ's death are we made acceptable to God. Only through Christ's death are we made acceptable to God. I don't think we can begin to fathom the depths of what that means. God gave his only son for us, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since before time was created, the Father and the Holy Spirit have shared relationship with the Son in perfect unity and love within the Godhead. God has always had community. God is community. He's always had relationship within himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always, always been. Most of you know that um, 
in my, my previous life, I worked in a prison uh, for many years. And I've, I've tried to imagine myself sacrificing one of my granddaughters so that prisoners could be freed from prison. Prisoners who were still getting into trouble and deserved to be there. Would I be willing to sacrifice my granddaughters for them? And of course, the, the, the answer is there's absolutely no way, right? Absolutely no way. Yet how much infinitely more has the Lord done for us, a people still in rebellion to him? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God sacrificed his son to save us, he is, now, is, he now, is he now going to invalidate what he did by changing the plan? Of course not. Of course not. He promised to give us all things necessary to bring us to his ultimate goal, our glorification and our eternity in his presence. Remembering from verse 28, all things we as his children go through work together for good. And also remember, don't assume what you are experiencing or going through now represents the final outcome. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So now we're being given this courtroom imagery. The next question Paul asks, if God is the one who justifies us because of the sacrifice he made on our behalf, who can bring charges against us? Who can accuse us? Of course, Satan, the accuser, will try, but God won't hear it. Our cases are closed. His accusations are thrown out of court because God has chosen us. We are his elect. What does elect or election mean? What does it really mean? Our election refers to God's choice of an individual or group for a specific person uh, purpose or destiny. In the next chapter, Romans 9, verses 10 through 11, we read, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Based on his foreknowledge of events and our choices, God is the one who chooses us, and he's also the judge who has declared us not guilty. Verse 34, who is to condemned? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Continuing with the courtroom imagery here, Paul says, who is to condemn? Future tense, who is to condemn? Just in case we didn't have enough assurance we're winning, Paul reminds us Jesus, the very one who gave himself as a sacrifice for us, will be sitting at the right hand of the Father in court, interceding on our behalf. In God's court, we have already been declared not guilty. Any further accusation is thrown out. Jesus died and was raised from the dead for us. He will not condemn those he died for. How much more proof and assurance do we need to be convinced that we're winning? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul goes on to postulate who or what can separate us from the love of Christ. This is from Paul, the one who had been beaten, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked, starved, suffered just about every disgrace imaginable for the gospel. He knew from personal experience none of these things could come between him and his Savior. None of these things. In the most horrible possible circumstances we might go through, the love of Christ remains with us. The love of Christ remains with us. The early Roman church would soon be experiencing horrible suffering and persecution. The Lord wants us to know His love remains with us, even when we're going through unimaginable things. We should not allow our suffering to drive us away from the Lord. Instead, we should identify with the suffering He experienced on our behalf and move closer to Him. Then we can allow His love to minister to us and to heal us. Verse 36 says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here Paul quoted from Psalm 44.22, and it reminds us believers, we are not immune from persecution, hard times, or even death. This is not a sign we are losing. In fact, it's kind of expected. Unfortunately, we have to experience the consequences of living in a sin-filled, fallen world. Add to that the spiritual warfare being waged against Christ and His people by the forces of darkness, and we quickly discover bad things happen to Christians. Bad things happen to Christians. Remember verse 28, all things work together for good. They don't always feel good, at least not in the moment. Why? We can't assume what we are experiencing or going through now represents the final outcome right? They work for good, God's good and ultimate plan for us. We can see the finish line. He does. Sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile that. I'm, I'm reminded of a story I once heard about. Uh, Chuck Smith actually told this story, and he, he told about how when his son was just a little guy, he had, a, he had broken his leg, and he had to take him to the ER. The child was in tremendous pain and was frightened, as you might imagine. And as long as his father stayed with him, the child remained calm, knowing his father loved him and that he could trust his dad. But the ER doctor told Chuck that he would have to set the child's leg, and it was going to be painful, and he's going to need the father's help by holding the child perfectly still while he did his work. Chuck braced his child while the doctor set his leg. The little boy screamed in agony as the doctor moved his broken leg. His father said, he, uh, Chuck said, he looked at me with such betrayal in his eyes. He couldn't understand how I could let him suffer so much pain. He was too young to understand it was for his own good. Chuck said he could, he could barely look at his son's face as his own eyes were filled with tears. 
We can't always understand why God allows us to suffer. We can't. But I do know he loves us. Christ loves us with all his heart. And whatever we're going through, it's ultimately for good. Verse 37 says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. So because of what Christ did for us, because of our standing before God, because Christ is our advocate and loves us, we truly are winners. So if you're one of those high achievers, this is great news. Verse 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor um, powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying in light of all these things, he is absolutely positively convinced through both death and the trials of life in this world, not the spiritual forces of angels and demons, absolutely nothing in this whole universe beyond can separate us from God's love through Jesus Christ. Wow. I don't know about you, but that sounds like winning to me. Amen? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we just ask, Lord, that through this new year and beyond, Lord, that um, you just remind us, speak to our hearts, um, remind us of the truths of, that you have already conquered sin and death and all those things, Lord. Though we still have to live in this world, Lord, we can have the hope and comfort and assurance that what's ahead is glorious and wonderful and that you've already won and we're part of that with you. In Jesus' name, amen.